Amen. What an awesome time of worshiping together. Uh, good morning. My name is Jordan, and uh, I am the director of community life here at Eastridge. And uh, I get the privilege of opening up God's word with you together this morning and, uh, and diving into the, the second sermon in our Mark series. So for those of you that were here last week, uh, you know that we've kicked off a series in Mark, and we're going to be... Um, Diving into the book of Mark, we're going to be doing the entire book. Uh, Pastor Duane did Mark 1-1 last week. So this week, uh, you know, we're taking step two on this 678-step journey. No, we're not going to be preaching that many sermons on Mark. But uh, we're, we're, we're going to be looking at the, the next uh, kind of chunk right there. So that's going to be verses uh, 2 through 8. So Mark 1, verses 2 through 8. And if... Uh, uh, if you weren't here last week, I'm just going to do kind of a quick summary of that sermon because, as you'll find, these sermons are all building on each other. Um, and, uh, and I would highly encourage you, if you didn't hear that sermon, to go back and listen to it. Um, but clearly, you're here now, so that's not possible at this very moment. So let me do a quick, um, a quick refresh on what that sermon was, or just kind of the, the highlights of that sermon. Um, so, Pastor Dean was telling us how the book of Mark was written um, in Rome by Mark. Uh, Mark was Peter's translator, um, and when I was first hearing that, it, I, that could, the full connection of the translation didn't, didn't quite connect in my brain, but this is because Peter's Greek wasn't that great, apparently, so he needed Mark to be a translator for him. So Peter's native tongue would have been Aramaic, so he's helping to be his translator, and then he's collecting these sermons and these stories that Peter has about his experience with Jesus, and he's, he eventually comes to a point where he writes them down, um, and he is in Rome, and, he's, and it's during a time of great persecution. So this would have been just right, um, either right before or right after Peter was killed by the Romans, uh, martyred by the Romans. And, um, and so uh, he has t Mark has been, has been stirred up by the Holy Spirit, stirred up by the community around him, I'm sure, as well, to, to write these things down. You know, Peter has, has, uh, has just died, and we need to, we need to keep these things. Uh, we need to keep these stories. And so that's what he does. He writes the book of Mark. Um, the book of Mark is the source material uh, m most scholars believe for the books of Luke and Matthew as well, so it would have been the first gospel that's written. Um, and, uh, and it conveys also what Christians would have believed from the very beginning. So that was something that, um, you know, was very important, an important part of that message as well. Uh, tying it back and saying this isn't, uh, you know, these gospels weren't written, weren't written as a way to try to like go back and, and rewrite things. This is, this is something that was written and, and kept and maintained and known that this is, this is important and we need to hold on to this. And this is what the, what Christians have believed from the very beginning. So, just kind of setting the table there as, uh, as, as for that first sermon. So, let's take a look now um, at uh, our next passage. Uh, if you have a Bible, this will be the time to open it up. We're going to be again looking at Mark 1, verses 2 through 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got Bibles on a back table back there. Uh, feel free to grab one of those and, uh, and consider that our gift to you. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home. Um, and, of course, it'll be up here on the screen behind me. So, without further ado, let's, uh, let's dive into Mark together. All right. So, starting in verse 2. 
As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. So we're going to be taking a look at this passage, and we're going to kind of take it in some bite-sized chunks here and unpack it together. And then uh, we're going to look, at see, look and see how, how is it that we're unpacking... What does this mean for us? What does this mean for, for my life right now? What does this mean for my heart, for my mind? And what, and what, is, God, what is God looking for? So let's take a look. Um, J- Mark opens up this gospel. You know, we've, we've had the first verse there, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, but then as soon as he's done with that, he points us right back to Isaiah and the prophets. Um, now, if you have an ESV version, uh, you would... Uh, you would, you'll notice there there's a, little, there's a little number where it says Isaiah, the prophet. There's a little number there. Then it actually says, you know, some manuscripts say the prophets. And I'm just kind of highlighting that detail a little bit, and that'll make sense a little bit later on. Um, but so, so Mark is pointing us back to Isaiah and the prophets. And, uh, and um, as I was looking at this passage, I was trying to think what would be an illustration that would kind of connect it to the, to the first readers that would have read this passage, what, what's an illustration that would connect it to us? And, and actually, this, is, this might sound a little strange, but the first, illustr- or the, the first thing that came to mind was a teaser trailer for a movie, all right? So um, now, a teaser trailer for a movie, now, if, now when I think of this, I think specifically of, uh, of something like, oops, sorry, I think of something like uh, Star Wars, for example, all right? So there's some sounds, some specific sounds that even if somebody who's a fan of Star Wars, or probably most people, uh, even if you're not necessarily a big fan of Star Wars, you can, you'll hear certain sounds and it'll start to trigger context for it. One of those would probably be the breathing of Darth Vader, right? You start hearing that and you automatically, if you've seen Star Wars, or I mean, it'd be hard to kind of miss it in our culture, you'll, you'll make that, con- that context of connection right there. Another sound would probably be the sound of a lightsaber going on, right? I'm not gonna try to make that sound effect. Um, so you're, you're, you should be thankful for that. But uh, so again, so when we, when we have these te- a teaser trailer, something just sh- shows some quick images that are meant to automatically draw your mind for those that would be looking forward to this, to that connection, and then they would know, it would start to build that up. So that sense of anticipation right there, so for those, for example, that would watch that trailer, there'd be some anticipation. Oh, this is, this is coming out, this is gonna be so, this is exciting, I'm excited about this, because it's something that I love. Now, when Mark points to Isaiah and the prophets, the early readers, that contextual, con- that, that connection would have been made right there. It would have been something because these are men and women who have sat in synagogues, 
They've listened to these prophets. They're anticipating. They're, they're waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And so Mark makes the connection there. Uh, like it says there, a clear link to the Old Testament and God's unfolding plan. So there's anticipation that's going on there. Um, and the, in that first, the first two verses there, um, there, again, a call back to the prophets, and it says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So, anticipating what? Anticipating a messenger, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, a herald that's going to come and he's going to call from the wilderness to the wilderness, as in calling the people to the wilderness, and we'll, we'll get into that as well. Um, and then right away in the next verse, it says, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So there we go, our messenger, the voice of one calling. Who is it? It's John the Baptist. And something that, uh, that Pastor Dwayne pointed out last week, and I'm sure it'll be said a few more times as we dig into Mark, Mark has a fast pace. He's just moving, moving, moving. And so what do we get? We get Isaiah, and then all of a sudden we've got John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, appeared in the wilderness as if out of thin air. Suddenly John's there in the wilderness. Well, clearly he didn't appear out of, out of thin air, but boom, this is the pace that, that Mark is working with here. Um, and, uh, and, and, what, and, let's, and let's take a little bit of a closer look then at our, uh, our quirky fellow here. I'll call him a quirky fellow, John the Baptist. Um, you know, and, uh, and the first thing to point out is going to be that, you know, John the Baptist is not a Baptist, but he's a baptizer. So this isn't, this isn't John showing kind of his denominational colors, right? I mean, denominations are a part of our, of our current uh, Christian experience, um, and there's wonderful things that, that happen with the different denominations. Um, there's some challenging things that occur there too, but, uh, but, but uh, we're not going to get into all that. It's just a matter of just pointing out, you know, John the Baptist, he isn't just a specifically a Baptist, of course. Um, no offense to our brothers, our Baptist brothers and sisters, or those of you that grew up in the Baptist tradition, but uh, he is a baptizer. So that's what his ministry is characterized by, right? So he is calling people out into the wilderness, and, and that wilderness component is something that is also something that we, we uh, miss a little bit. Um, and the, the reason for that is, is when someone who would have been reading this initially, they hear that word wilderness, and it would trigger in their mind um, the Jewish and Israelite history in the wilderness, all right? And what this does is it brings them back to the, to the time that they had spent in Exodus. Now, for the Jewish people, the Israelite people, that time in the wilderness was not a comfortable time by any means at all, okay? It was not. But what it was, it was the highlight period of their time, this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, where God's presence is visibly there directing them where to go, when to stop, and 
It's something, again, as a community, they could all see. Moses would go into the, into the tent, the tent of the tabernacle that they had built, that God had commanded them to build. The cloud would come over this, this, this tent. Actually, let, let me say it this way. The cloud would come over this tent. Nobody could go in there because God's presence was there, right? Then there'd be times where Moses would go. He would talk with God. His face would be visibly changed as in radiating, and it would actually freak the, uh, the Israelite people out. And so they would say, you got to put a veil on that, Moses. You're freaking this out here. You're like, you're looking all glowing and stuff. This isn't normal. Um, but again, they look back on that time, and for obvious reasons, I think, because who, who here among us hasn't thought at one point or another, wouldn't it be amazing if God would just show me which way to go? If God would just tell me what to do in this situation, if I could just see him visibly in front of me, wouldn't that just change everything? So there was a period of time in Israelite history where this was happening. And so, again, a wilderness time, great discomfort in many ways, but the visible presence of God in a cloud, of, in a cloud by day and a cloud of fire by night. Incredible. All right? So... So that's what they think of. So you've got John the Baptist, he's calling them from the wilderness, but he's calling them to the wilderness again, as if calling them almost to like a second exodus, and then to be baptized in the Jordan River. And again, kind of almost an allusion to like being baptized again, coming through the Red Sea, something along those lines as well. And so kind of this recommitment and a reconnection there. So that's what he's doing. He's calling them. And something that's interesting to think about too is that there is this um, confession of sins that it talks about. It says, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So keep in mind, this is during the time of the sacrificial system. So confessing sins to each other is something that is not normal. But we see, and this is, and again, this is part of John kind of preparing the way for Jesus. We see that a part of this preparation is this time of confession that's happening. Um, and, uh, and it shows there also kind of the popularity of, of, of John's ministry. It says the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Um, so very popular. Um, but then we also start to get into a little bit more of the quirks here. So, you know, we get, we, he's not a Baptist. He's a baptizer. But then we also get a little glimpse of his diet and style here, all right? So they, they, these are some you know, important things we don't want to miss out on as well. So uh, that's going to be in verse 6. It says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair. Um, and, uh, and he ate, oh, and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. All right? So, all right. Living out in the wilderness, camel shirt or tunic or whatever, probably not, you know, John's, John's pretty ripe. I mean, that's kind of, you know, so maybe that's one of the reasons he's down, you know, baptizing people all the time in the water, you know, so just, ooh, all right. So, and then, and then we've got this quirky little part where it's talking about him, he's eating locusts and wild honey. Okay, you had me with the wild honey, I'm on board with that, John, and then you start eating locusts? That's, uh, that's not something that I can really get behind there. But, um, you know, in, in reading about this, it's, it was a little funny because you know, a lot of the commentaries were saying there was a period of time where people were saying, well, it wasn't really locusts he was eating. It was a kind of bean, you know, the locust bean. Um, but then, you know, as they do more digging into it, they realize, okay, no, this is, it was, it was leg- he was eating locusts. You know, this, th- th- this is a part of the world where they, and, and one of the commentaries went on to say this, this is a part of the world where they would still eat locusts, actually, and they eat them with relish. And I was like, okay, 
garnish them with relish. All right, I don't know if John was doing that, but you know, it's kind of this, this quirky part about him. And, that's, and that diet and style that he's got is consistent with, with, the, with the nomadic wilderness lifestyle that he had, and also it kind of reinforces his prophetic image also. Um, now, when it talks about what he's wearing, that's something that the early readers would have connected actually to a specific prophet, and it's the prophet Elijah. And so, if you, uh, we're not, I'm not, it's not going to be up on the screen, but in 2 Kings 1.8, um, it describes Elijah and what he's wearing, um, and actually I've got it right here, it says, uh, so this is 2 Kings 1, verses 7 through 8, so the, this is the king a king asking, so the king says, or the king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and who told you this? And they replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. All right? So there, Mark is drawing this connection from Elijah to John the Baptist. And one of the things that's really important to notice there is that the prophets, and the last book in the, in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, it had been 400 years since there had been any kind of prophet that had come to the people of Israel. And so it was just a period of silence. But now, Mark is saying, that thing that we were anticipating, that exciting thing that we wanted to, be, that we wanted to have happen, the pro- a prophet is now here among us, and his name is John the Baptist. It's been 400 years, and there's now one here, and he's heralding something. He's, he's telling us about something that's going to be happening here soon. Um, and, then, and then Mark goes on, and, and he, he distills down uh, the heart of what John's message is, and he does that in verses 7 and 8. So let's look at that together. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, Mark distills down this message, and it's kind of got these four parts to it. So, the first thing we see is he's saying, someone's coming. Someone's coming after me. I'm here now but someone's coming after me. And it's not just someone that's coming after me, it's gonna be in comparison. You think, you know, those of, that are around John at the time, you think I'm a big deal. We see that we've seen the popularity of John's ministry, people coming out. You think I'm a big deal. Well, I'm not even worthy to untie or, un, you know, untie the shoelaces of the one that's coming after me. Now, he uses that phrase, and it's, you know, a comparison phrase, and in, at, this, at this time, the, the lowest servant or slave that somebody had was responsible for that, that, uh, that, that, that part of, uh, that, that was part of their duties, all right? So you got to untie my shoe so I can kick, kick my sandal off or kick my boot off, right? Um, and that was their responsibility. So John is saying, I'm not even, I'm not even that worthy in comparison to the one that's coming. Um, and, uh, and then he goes on to talk about what his kind of role and, and his responsibilities are. He says, you know, I baptize you with water, 
That's what I'm here to do. There's a, there's a confession that happens here amongst us, a forgiveness of sins, and a time to come together, and, and, and kind of a, a time of recommitment. But this is just baptism in water. That's all that it is. And the one that's coming, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And, and he uses that phrase, he says, the one more powerful than I. Um, and that's not something that we... Well, we look, I look at that and I'm like, well, that, that, that's a little bit of a tease of a phrase, and it is, um, but, but there's actually part of the prophets, so previously what we just read as part of the prophets, um, are going to help us to unpack who that is, that, that one right there, the one that's more powerful than I. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to look to unpack that a little bit, um, and and I was, uh, I, I got to credit this kind of this, this concept to, uh, to somebody that, uh, his, his name is Tim Mackey. Some of you may, may be familiar with his work. Um, I got a chance to attend a, uh, a, a uh, kind of intensive, um, week-long uh, retreat that he, that he was the speaker at. And, uh, and what he did was he introduced kind of one of, the, one of the many, many concepts he introduced, but one of the ones that was really helpful for me, and I think will be helpful for you too, is this, this concept of what he calls like a hyperlink concept, all right? So for those of you, I mean, everybody here is using the internet. Some of you are probably pretty familiar with what a hyperlink is. So it's a, it's a small little word, it's a word or a small phrase that's on a web page. Uh, you click on that, and it takes you to another web page that then gives you kind of the full details of what it is that that small phrase was talking about. And actually, what we're looking at here with those, with those initial verses um, in, uh, in, in uh, verse 2 and 3, those are, are what Tim Mackey would call a hyperlink to then go back and take a look at those texts and start to get some more information there. So we're going to actually do that right now. Um, and, uh, and so let's take a look then where we get uh, that first verse. So this is, so remember I was talking about how in some translation says, you know, Isaiah, but then, you know, the prophets, right? So that's because this first verse actually comes from the book of Malachi. So Let's, uh, if you've got your Bible there, open that up. It'll also be on the screen. We're going to be opening up to Malachi 3, verses 1 and 2. And it says this. And you'll recognize these words, of course. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. So again, there it is. The messenger who's coming. The Lord comes. Something that they've been anticipating. There's been a strong desire for that. But then we start to see a little bit of tension in the passage as well. Who, who can endure this? Who can endure it when he comes? Who can stand in his presence? And it talks about a refining fire, a launderer's soap. <clears throat> All right. So next up, we're going to take a look, and we're going to get some more context around the, the passage in Isaiah. And this is Isaiah 40, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. And it says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again... We look at the context there, and we begin to unpack it a little bit more, and we see a voice of one calling in the wilderness, calling them out, preparing the way for the Lord. Um, And then verses 4 and 5, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill be made low. There's significant change. Again, there's some tension here. So there isn't just an anticipation of something coming and the excitement around that, but then there's also an impact, an impact that's going to happen, and nothing is going to be able to stay the same. So when we look at this, this, this one, the, the one that's more powerful, as it says, so we look at it with, those, with that context in mind, and we see, again, the status by comparison, right? We've got not being able to stand in their presence. Who can endure it? And then also, of course, John highlights that, not even, that he's not even fit to untie his sandal, right? So we see that the comparison is totally different. And then we also see the role of the, and the power of the one that's coming. A refining fire, a launderer's soap. Refining, cleansing. And then we see again, and then we see in, verse, in Isaiah 40, verses 5 and 3, the change is happening to the landscape, valleys being raised up, mountains being laid low, ground being retilled and, and changed um, and reclaimed. And so what do we see? Well, if we take a look at the next slide here, one of, one of the commentaries points it out very, very clearly. It says, it's Yahweh, God. It's Yahweh who will follow the forerunner in both Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. And in Old Testament thought, it is God or Yahweh himself who will pour out his spirit in the last days. So the one more powerful, talk about an understatement, for who is coming. Yahweh is coming. And again, that impact, that impact that happens and that nothing will stay the same. Um, So, the next part of what we're going to be doing is, is taking a look at three ways that I would say God is preparing the way in our lives based off of kind of what we see in those in those passages. So, we see the first one, that God wants to reshape us or reclaim us. We see this in Isaiah 40 where it talks about the land being changed, the mountains being brought low. So when you think about in your life, what are some of these mountains that need to be brought low? What is some of this ground that needs to be reclaimed or reshaped? 
And it starts with repentance. Acknowledging and giving over those strongholds that are in our life. Giving those over to God and repenting of what those are. So, I ask again, what, what would those strongholds be in your life? Now, I know there's strongholds, and it looks different um, for, those of, for, for, for people that are in different stages, because all of us are going to be in different stages of what we're talking about here. But I know that for, for my life, for example, what this repentance will look like is as there are, again, what I would call these strongholds in our lives, and it's a stronghold that actually begins to start to identify it becomes kind of a core part of our identity. And we start to, to, to shape this up. And so, you know, it can, it can be anything from um, something, a memory that's happened, or something that's happened to us, and we begin to build our identity around that, around that memory, that event. It could be um, something that's rooted itself in our heart, whether it's fear, whether it's anxiety, whether it's worry. Um, it could be anger in our lives, Anger for either something that we've experienced, something that's happened to us, or, or just, or just a, a, a spirit of angerness that's there, that's present, that we need to begin to repent of and turn to Christ for. So, the next thing... Um, but repentance, I would say, is just the first step in this process, all right? And God is wanting more for us, actually. And that comes when we look at, in Malachi, where it talks about the, the launderer's soap, kind of this cleansing, this purifying. So God wants to cleanse us. And the way that that looks, and as we see in Scripture, if we look at uh, 1 John 1, 9, uh, that's not going to be up on the screen, but we'll, we'll, we'll read that together. Is, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is, this is a little bit different than repentance. Repentance is that first, that stopping, that, that conviction that happens, that first stop, and then you, that turning around, deciding, I'm going I'm to go in this other direction and you turn around. And then confession, which is a challenging topic to talk about, that confession is what, what, what I would, the best way I can think of representing it, and we'll actually see this here in a quote and shortly, but is a taking off of the mask. It's an ownership, an ownership of, of, of what's going on in our lives. Um, and uh, and it's, it's a confession that happens between us and God as we work these things out in our lives. But it's also a confession that happens with each other. And we see this in the book of James, James 5.16. It says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So then we see, of course, confessing to, confessing to God, but then also a confession that happens to each other. Um, and this is one of the reasons why it's so important to be in community with brothers and sisters, 
followers of Christ. Now, I'm, what I'm not saying is that somebody needs to come up and they need to start publicly just sharing all this with, with everybody and anybody. No, that's not, what, that's not what I'm saying here, and I don't believe that's what the text is saying either. What it's saying is there are brothers and sisters that we are linked arm in arm with, committed to Christ together with, and there are going to be pockets of people that we can be vulnerable and we're able to take that mask off to, and they see who we really are and we see who they really are. And one of the incredible side effects of that is that in that process, sin will begin to lose its stranglehold and its power in people's lives. As, that, as the community, as that, as that small group or that community comes around that believer and they're able to be, to be vulnerable and share, the weight of that, the shame of that, that community is able to bear it together and they're able to speak gospel truth to each other and remind them, this is, this is something that as a child of God, you are forgiven of. And they can speak gospel truth to each other. Um, there's a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer here that I think I'd like us to read as well. So if you could put that one up. Um, and I think this is kind of where the, that mask image comes from. It says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. You can hide nothing from him. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. Confession. And it's the big things, the persistent things, things that are, that are, that are, that are going on um, <clears throat> and things that continue to go on, being able to share those together, being honest about it with God and honest about it with the community that's around us. And finally, the third thing that I've got up here is God wants to refine us. And I can't think of any better word to, to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives than the, work, than, than the word refine. Um, we saw there at the, uh, in, in Mark, the last verse there where it talks about, you know, John is coming to baptize in water. But uh, the one that's coming, the one more powerful, will be baptizing you with the Holy Spirit. And that's to acknowledge that it's only made possible by the work, all of this is only made possible by the work, this refining work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, and uh, one of the things... <laughs> I was, I was a little bit hesitant to actually um, approach this a little bit but because it's something that I want to approach carefully, and it's this phrase, actually, that says right there, um, a baptism or will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, it's, it's likely that some of you in this room might have um, some, some uh, baggage that might come along with that phrase right there. Um, because of either past experiences or whether it's, uh, or whether it's a tradition that you grew up in. Um, and, and what I want to be able to do is just a little bit here is 
is, is kind of unpack um, that baptism of the Holy Spirit and that refining, and, and that refining process and, uh, and uncouple it maybe from that, that baggage that you might be carrying. So um, there are times when that phrase will be used to almost signify kind of like the next tier, the second level in, uh, in, in someone's spirituality is, is this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, where, <clears throat> but in reality, this, this isn't... Uh, that, that wouldn't be an accurate interpretation of the text. And, and we'll take a look actually at this, this next uh, quote. Uh, it's by a guy named R.T. France. Um, and, uh, and we'll take a look at that. So it says here, It is noteworthy that the only passages in the New Testament which use the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit are those which contrast this baptism, so the baptism of the Holy Spirit, with the water baptism as practiced by John. And then he goes through and lists um, different passages where that is. The immediate reference is, therefore, not to a second stage of Christian experience, but to the authentic Christian experience as contrasted with the preliminary pre-Christian experience represented by John's water baptism, right? So we have John's water baptism that was a pre-Christian experience, and there's, there's a baptism that happens, but then the baptism in the Holy Spirit is one where Jesus brought that and then we actually see the visible manifestation of that in Acts 2. Um, and again, one of, we see where it links this visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit with tongues of fire that are over the disciples' heads. Um, and the Spirit is poured out on them. And they go on to have boldness. And they go on to speak in different languages. And they're proclaiming the gospel. And it's just stirring up um, Jerusalem and, uh, and people's hearts and minds. Um, and so this, one thing that's important to note here is that this, this work of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is teaching us and encouraging us and providing a discernment and growth, all of this is leading towards, uh, you know, a, a fancy Christian word that we use at times, but it's, that right there is, is in and of itself the process of sanctification. And this is a lifelong process. The Holy Spirit that was poured out and is continued to be seen throughout the church's life and in our lives um, as we come under the lordship of who Jesus is and, and then we start to see the, the active presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how that changes us. Um, and, uh, and so all of this begins to happen in our lives and we see that we see that uh, the, there's this preparation process that God is preparing these things in our lives as we take that first step, that first step of repentance. Um, but one thing that I want to make sure I make a clear connection to here right at the end is right there in Isaiah 40, verse 5, where it says, let me turn there, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So it talks about the glory of the Lord that will be revealed. We ask, well, what, what is this glory that's, that's going to be revealed? And in Acts 2, verse 36, Peter lays out specifically what this glory is, where it says this, 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus, Jesus' coming into this world was the glory of God being revealed. And that's my challenge to you today. Again, many of us in this room who call Eastridge our home church are in different stages along this, this journey. But there may be some of you here, and you're checking out Eastridge, and you're checking out, you know, what is the saying about Jesus here? And I am so glad that you're here, and I would encourage you and challenge you to really continue to come back as we dig into Mark and as we begin to unpack who is this Jesus? What is this kingdom that he's, that he's announcing? And, and as we begin to peel back the layers of that and explore it together and be encouraged by it and ultimately look to be transformed by it. So, I'll go ahead and call the band out right now. And um, one thing that I also wanted to make sure to highlight was um, something that's coming up, and that's our baptism that we've got coming up. So we've been talking, this passage has, had a lot, has a lot about baptism in it, and that's something that the church um, continues to practice. And this, this what, what I, kind of the, the, short, the short nutshell version of what I say is, is baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. For those of you that have, um, so if you're, if you're here, if you have made a commitment to Christ, if you're looking to, to understand more of who he is and you've, and you've taken that step, Baptism is an outward expression of that where we as a body get to celebrate that with you together and, be, and, uh, and, and join with you in that, and it's, and it's exciting. Um, so we, next week we have a class, a baptism class. Um, if you're curious about that, if, if you're a Christian, you haven't been baptized, you just have questions about it, please join us for that class, um, and, uh, and we'd love for you to, to consider that here um, as, as a part of our church family. Um, now we're also going to be getting to do something together that, that I love, 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 love to do together as a church, and that is to uh, share communion together. So if you are, if Easter Church is your home, or if you are a follower of Christ, you're committed to Christ, um, we're going to be taking communion together. Um, so the band's going to be playing some music for us, and go ahead and uh, you can step out of your seats, and we've got the communion elements around us. Uh, we've got uh, some gluten-free in the back, if that's something that, uh, that you would need, and um, in, my, in the back to the left there. So please go ahead. Um, we'll head to the table, and then afterwards, I'll come back up to the front and lead us together uh, in communion.